This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this evening, it's always good to make sure that we are in fellowship. Whenever the believer sins, it immediately creates a breach in that relationship with the Heavenly Father. We are no longer abiding in Christ, as John puts it in John 15. We're no longer walking by the Spirit, as Paul puts it in Galatians 5.16. We're no longer walking in the light, as John puts it in 1 John 1. So we need to be restored to fellowship, and we do that simply by admitting or acknowledging our sin to God. Now, this isn't just some sort of general expression of, of I sinned. The point is a teaching lesson for God to have us think about the fact that we've sinned and the, the sins that we've committed, and to admit those in, before his court, and he forgives us doesn't do you any good just to walk into a courtroom anywhere in the U.S. when you've received a traffic ticket and say, yeah, I broke the law. It's not what you're admitting to. So there's an admission of a particular breach of God's righteousness. And we are to admit that and recognize in the process that all sins were paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. So the issue isn't how we feel. The issue isn't uh, some sort of bargain with God. I always tend to chuckle because there's always folks who think that they need to to somehow beg God or plead with God or promise God they won't do it anymore. And the reality is that God in his omniscience knows that you're going to do that 4,932 times before the end of next month. So he simply wants us to focus on, as he does so often in the Old Testament with the Levitical offerings, a recognition that that we don't deserve grace, that God has done it all, and that we are totally dependent upon him. So confession is an opportunity for us to identify the sins in our life, admit, acknowledge them, make sure we're back in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, so the Holy Spirit can use the time profitably in our spiritual growth. Let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are the one who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and you created us in your image and likeness. You created the human race for the purpose of ultimately glorifying you and demonstrating through their volitional uh, 
decisions, the veracity of your integrity, the consistency of your righteousness. And when man failed, you demonstrated your love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, you sent your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to die on the cross as a substitute for us, that we might have eternal life. And, Father, as part of that eternal life, you have given us such tremendous privileges and blessings. We are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, who has made our bodies a temple for the indwelling of God the Son. And you are working in us to conform us to his image on a daily basis. Now, Father, the means that you have determined for that is the Word of God. And as we take this time to worship you through the teaching of the Word, we pray that we would be responsive to the teaching ministry, the illuminating ministry of God the Holy Spirit, as we press on to maturity in our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Revelation chapter 2. We're wrapping up the first epistle of the seven short epistles, these congregational evaluation reports that the Lord Jesus Christ is sending to the seven churches in Asia Minor. The first is to the church in Ephesus. And as I noted last time in verse 5, the challenge to them is to remember to focus on the past. This has to do with historical analysis. Specifically in their situation, it was historical analysis with regard to their congregational history. With regard to each individual, there is a history of your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and your own spiritual growth. So it's an opportunity for you to take the time on a regular basis to do a little self-evaluation in terms of where you're going in the spiritual life? Have you just sort of reached a point, a plateau, where you relax and coast, or are you still pressing on to that high calling that you have as a believer to reach spiritual maturity and to glorify God? You never reach a point of status quo in the Christian life. You never reach a point where you just relax and coast. There's never a point of retirement in the Christian life. There's one test after another, and I think each decade brings its own unique set of, of tests and examinations with regard to doctrine. And so we are to not only evaluate congregational history, but also personal history. And we spent the last two Sundays looking at uh, the broader picture of evaluating history itself, because what we see in history is the outworking of the plan of God and the outworking of theological decisions and positive volition within the life of a nation. And I took the time to trace out what has taken place in the history of this nation with regard to the First Amendment and how the early, early fathers who founded this country had a firm conviction of the truth of Christianity for the most part. There were some, of course, that were not born again. They were not regenerate, but many of them were. And all of them, uh, for the most part, operated within a theistic world life view. That is, they thought in terms of a God who created the heavens and the earth and a God to whom they would be personally accountable at the time of their death. And that was a reality for most of them. 
They knew that at the time that they died physically, they would be answerable to their Creator. Whether they had a deist view or whether they had a, a, a strict theistic view, whether they were believers or just on the fringe of Christianity, this was a, a belief that was sunk deep within the consciousness of colonial American culture. Everyone believed that they would be held accountable. So when they had prayers at the beginning of the Constitutional Convention, when courts met and they began with an invocation to God, they weren't going through simply a, a ritual formality that had been practiced for decades or centuries, as it's the case now, but this was something that had personal meaning and significance for them, especially at the, those who were uh, establishing the beginning of this country, they knew that this country could not go forward apart from the grace of God. And so there was a reality there. And we trace the spiritual decline of the nation through the last 200 years and how that has in, impacted how the courts have interpreted history until we reach a point today when society itself pretty much wants to ignore or deny the existence of God. We sort of pushed him off into a corner, if not completely uh, removed his presence from the room. And this is the, has been the trend in judicial decisions since the end of World War II. And this is what has led to the current reality of judicial activism. See, once you no longer have a God who is there, and a God who has spoken in the form of the Ten Commandments, and a God who has communicated absolute truth as the foundation for all value judgments, then what you're left with is just a bunch of little gods running around who are making their own determination as to what is good and what is evil. It is the outworking of Satan's temptation to Eve in the Garden of Eden that if you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. And so now in a fallen state, we have millions of little gods running around this nation who have rejected the God of the Bible as a source of absolute. So each individual then becomes his own source of absolute. And so when you translate that into the judicial system, you run into numerous judges today who still open their courtroom with certain statements that uh, indicate that there is a God, perhaps. And you have Congress meeting and they open in prayer. But these are perfunctory procedures that ha do not have real meaning in the hearts and minds of most of the people that are performing them. And what has happened is that the individuals involved have elevated themselves to the position of being the final determiner of what is good and what is evil. And so you end up having various battles between courts because the courts become the determiner of what is right and wrong as opposed to the legislature, which represents the world of the people, and you have a rise of judicial activism. And you are going to witness more and more of this in the coming decade as this country moves to a position of judicial tyranny. And that's the only thing that we can expect if we have a biblical framework of history we recognize that when there is no God, then everyone does what's right in their own eyes. This is exactly the scenario that took place in the book of Judges 
in the Old Testament. And once you remove God from his place, then everybody just does whatever they want to. And it's a different form of tyranny. It is the tyranny of the sin nature. It is the tyranny of the masses. And it, it is as corrupt and as destructive to the people as a totalitarian government. In fact, that's exactly what God, the point that God is making in the Old Testament. If you do an analysis of the book of Judges and you do an analysis of what's going on during the period of the early monarchy with the, with the, very, with the kings, God is demonstrating that there's corruption at every level and there is no freedom, there is no prosperity unless the people and the leadership both are submitted to the authority of God. And we live in the church age today so that the voice of objectivity that is to rule in the church age is the voice of the church because the voice of the church, it represents the voice of God. It is the church, which is the place where the word of God is being taught, where doctrine is being communicated, where people learn to think in terms of eternal absolutes. And so we concluded our study by emphasizing the fact that the believer is the key to the blessing and prosperity of a nation. As goes the believer, so goes the nation. In the same way that Old Testament believers brought blessing to those around him, blessing by association, the same is true in the New Testament with the church age believer. And so the most important thing that we can do, wherever we are, whatever nation we're in, is to make sure that a study of the Word of God and its application in our own life is the highest priority, that we are not going to be distracted by all the stuff that goes on, all the demands on our time. And frankly, if you look at, if you look at what uh, has gone on in the last 30 years, the distractions that you and I face to the daily study and focus on the Word of God are much more intense than they've ever been. People are working more today and taking home less than they were 30 years ago. In the 19, early 1970s, it was only necessary for the father to work 40 hour, a 40-hour work week, and he could support a family of four. By 1985, it took both the mother and the father working 60 hours a week to have the same quality of life that the one single wage earner made in 1970 working 40 hours a week. Now, if you think about that in terms of how that impacts the time that you have, the disposable time that you have, the free time you have, to relax and take in the Word and focus on eternal realities, then you, you understand the pressures that we all go through. And it's true for every one of us. We have so many things that demand uh, time. And today there's a multiplication of paperwork and in a number of different areas, uh, you may recognize that I've spent some time this last week working on my taxes, which is true for all of us. It just gets worse and worse every single year. But all of these things distract us from the realities of life and the real priorities. And this is the message in the last part of, of each one of these epistles, and we'll start with it in Ephesus. The last part begins in 2.6. You have the last part of the commendation. But then we come to the, the focal point at the end in verse 11, which will be the challenge, the final challenge to all of us, and that is to make sure we keep our priority on the right thing. Now, 
having challenged them to the correction, to remember, and verse 5, to remember where you have fallen and to repent, which simply means to change your mind. It doesn't mean to have remorse or to feel sorry for your sins. That may be true. I mean, let's face it, we're going to do things that make us wish we hadn't done them. There's going to be remorse, there's going to be sorrow, there's going to be sadness, and we may really screw up and just want to beg God uh, not to lower the boom on us, and that always happens. But the only thing that the Bible talks about is in terms of forgiveness, it just means to admit or acknowledge your sins to Him. If you go back and you read Psalm 22 and Psalm 37, uh, Psalm 51, where David is confessing his sin to God, he's hurting. I mean, there is, there is, those psalms are pregnant with his emotion because he was under God's discipline and he felt it in every pore of his body. And if you think that he was just uh, reading a grocery list, then you're mistaken. He is, he is seriously feeling it in every aspect of his being, but that isn't the issue. The issue is a recognition of what we've done and that all sin is a sin against God because sin is a violation of his character and therefore it's not against somebody else, no matter who who may be hurt. Sin is an issue between the individual believer and God. And that doesn't mean that you don't have to come along at times because you hurt people, because we do things that offend people. We do things that that create a breach in our fellowship with others and have to go to them and apologize for what we've done. That's legitimate. But that doesn't have anything to do with the spiritual life or advance in in terms of the relationship with God. So the Ephesians are told to remember from whence they've fallen, to repent, that is to change their thinking, get back in fellowship and abide in Christ and do the first works, that is, get back to, to uh, mature production in the spiritual life, and then the warning, or else I will come to you quickly, which is the point we've made the last three weeks, Jesus Christ interferes with our life. He intervenes in grace, but when we're out of line, it's intervention. I mean, it's interference. That's how we view it. And one of the great interferences is that we need to be taking in the Word on a daily basis. We can't just rationalize the fact, which can be true for almost everyone in this room, that somehow I've been sitting here long enough to where I know it all. Well, you may know a tremendous amount, but we need to be reminded on a weekly basis that God is faithful. That no matter what we go through, God is always going to be there. That God's grace is the standard for His relationship with each one of us. That no matter what happens during the week, God's Word is sufficient. We need to have it deep in our soul. And it is so easy for sin to cover that over and to create calluses in our soul where we don't respond to the Word as well as we once did. We can get involved in a very slippery slope once we start going negative to doctrine. And it can happen very quickly. So the Lord warns that He's going to interfere in their life. They will become uncomfortable. He'll remove their lampstand suddenly, unexpectedly unless they repent, that is, unless they change. And then in verse 6, he, re, he goes back to a reminder of their one thing they have done positively. He says, but this you have, and he uses the strong uh, contrastive conjunction there, indicating that he's now shifting from the negative back to the positive. But this you have, this one thing you have, 
that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So there's one more positive thing he's going to point out, and this is something that is that has a historical characteristic to it, which we'll get to in a minute. But first we have to understand the figure of speech here that is used, this concept of hating. Does God hate in the same way that you and I hate? When you and I hate, it's a product of the sin nature motivated by the fact that we've been hurt or injured, or at least we think we've been rejected or hurt or injured. We perceive it if one thing or another. And so there is a response of bitterness, antagonism. It's usually mixed with a desire for revenge, a desire to see the other person hurt, and all those other lovely thoughts that just well up within our, our, our chaste little hearts, right? That speaks to every one of us. And this is not what this is talking about. When we look at the Scripture, probably the best one to look at is the passages that talk about, uh, you quoted a couple of times, where the Lord says, uh, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. It is not does not mean that when God saw Jacob, he just wrapped him up in his arms and said, Oh, how sweet and how wonderful you are, Jacob. Because if you study the life of Jacob, as we will in our study in Genesis, Jacob was a, was a, 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 a real swindler. He was two-faced. He was the heel grabber. He was always out to, to uh, uh, get whatever he could, any way he could get it. And there was nothing lovable in Jacob. Esau wasn't a whole lot better. He didn't have his priorities right at all, and he had his own set of problems, both spiritually and physically. But when God says that he hates Esau, it's not because Esau has somehow embittered God against him. This juxtaposition of love and hate is a figure of speech that indicates acceptance and rejection. Acceptance and rejection. And so when this phraseology is used in the Scripture, we usually talk of it in terms of a, the word of anthropopathism. And anthropopathism is a figure of speech where human emotions, which God doesn't actually possess, are attributed to Him in order to communicate to us the plans, the purposes, and the policies of God. It's when human emotions that God doesn't actually possess are attributed to him in order to communicate to us in a common frame of reference the purposes, plans, and policies of God. And so when God says that he hates the deeds, and this word is the, as I've indicated on the overhead, is the Greek word ergon, which is one we've seen already in the in the text and in the context of these seven epistles, this word is not just works. It's a general word for production. It's a general word for the outworking in uh, the life of these Nicolaitans. And it's the idea that they reject in total the production of the Nicolaitans. They have a frame of reference that they are utilizing to have discernment. I mean, this is, they, they just don't like, it isn't a fact that they don't like these people, that somehow they're following another pastor and it's not our pastor and so we don't like you. Uh, it's nothing of that nature. It is that we understand the production in your system. It's not just 
just the outworking of the system. It is the undergirding doctrine that is the foundation for your production. See, all production in life, whether it's mental production or whether it is overt production, it has a foundation in some sort of philosophical view of life or theological view of life. And in the situation with the Nicolaitans, they had a particular theology that produced a certain lifestyle. And so it's the entire package that is being rejected by the Ephesians because they have a frame of reference. Now, what's that frame of reference? The frame of reference was the doctrine that they had been taught faithfully by the various pastors that they had had down through the years, whether it was Paul in the early years, if they were old enough, or or Timothy or some of the others that came along, including the Apostle John. But because they learned the truth, they had a frame of reference so that they could evaluate what was going on around them. They didn't just live in some sort of some sort of isolated bubble where they just went to church and then they went home. But everywhere they went in that Ephesian culture, they were being virtually slapped in the face with, with paganism. Uh, you would see mosaics on the wall representing the various gods and goddesses in the Greek pantheon. They had the, the temple to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And you had hundreds and uh, thousands of pilgrims who would come to Ephesus to, to worship at the, at the temple of Artemis. And there was uh, fertility religions. It was also a major site for the worship of, of Sibylle and the, uh, the Sibylle Addis cult, which was a mystery cult in the ancient world. It was also a place where Dionysius was worshipped. He was originally an Anatolian uh, god, Anatolia being the uh, area of Turkey, Asia Minor, an ancient word, uh, meaning the place of the eastern sun or the place in the east. And so all of this was going on. So every time they left church, they had to interact with rank paganism on a day-to-day basis they just couldn't get off into their own little christian country club where they had uh, associations with only uh, other like-minded people and this is important christians are in the world we have been removed from the world we are to be engaged with the world around us we're to be witnessing to unbelievers this is supposed to be a standard dynamic of our Christian life is communicating the gospel to those around us, always being ready, Peter said, to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Not just saying, well, you know, somehow God, if God wants them saved, he'll get the gospel to them, but I'm too busy right now. See, it always comes back to a matter of priority. And they, the Ephesians understood all of this, and they rejected the entire framework of the Nicolaitans because they were involved in interacting with the culture around them. They understood the difference. Now, one of the things that I try to incorporate now and again when I'm teaching is interaction with some of the X, acts, and spasms that are going around in the culture today so that we can learn, so that all of us can develop that kind of critical thinking grid so that we can filter out the garbage and uh, take in that which is good, but also so that we can have a better understanding of where people are coming from. When we hear certain phrases or we see certain things take place, we, we have an idea of what, what's really going on, what the underlying issues are, so we can think better, not so we become critical. 
There's a difference between having critical thinking skills and being a negative critical person where you're just running somebody else down or other positions down. It is to be able to understand where their weaknesses are so that you can have a better leverage in communicating the truth of God's Word. Fundamentally, what we're talking about here is that a high priority in the Ephesian church was doctrine, study of doctrine. Now, what do I mean by the study of doctrine? I was thinking about this the last couple of weeks, and I developed this little chart here to try to help us understand what we mean when we talk about Bible doctrine. This is one of the uh, most misunderstood phrases today. In fact, it's even been under attack for the last 30 or 40 years. I was almost afraid to use the word doctrine for many years when I was a student at Dallas Seminary because people would say, oh, you're just one of those people who's all just into doctrine and no application. Well, that was from people who, and sadly, were seminary professors and others who ought to know better. The word doctrine that's used in the Scripture, it derives from the Greek word didaskalia, didaskalia, which is part of the word group that means, the verb means to teach, and this noun means teaching. That's all it means is teaching. You teach a lot of different things. Teaching can involve teaching about the, the, the character of God, the attributes of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, which a lot of people think is, is, is not really, well, so what? That's nice to know that God exists three in one, but I can't understand it. Let's get to some real application. I mean, that's how a lot of people think. But if you really understood the doctrine of the Trinity, you would understand that it determines how you deal with many things. It's a foundation for understanding uh, relationships, for marriage, for understanding uh, a system of politics where there can be uh, genuine liberty given to the individuals within the community as well as a structure of authority. All of that is embedded in the doctrine of the Trinity, but sadly most pastors are afraid to even go there because it's going to scare somebody off. But what, what I've done here is to indicate by this rectangle, which shades from one side to the other, that includes two things. On the one side, biblically sound theology. See, what happens is in evangelical parlance, doctrine has come to mean theology, which is then sort of, well, we don't want to get into that. That's too theological. Theology is divisive, I've heard. So we don't want to teach too much theology. Therefore, we don't want to teach too much doctrine. But that's not how the Bible uses the word. Starts with biblically sound theology, and it automatically leads to application in two realms. It begins in the thought realm, mental attitude, dynamics. It's, it, it relates to how you think, what you think, and then it leads to overt actions. All of that is involved in teaching. Sometimes when we're teaching, we're teaching something that may seem a little more abstract, but we always know that if it's biblical truth, it has application either in the thought realm or in overt life and just has to be brought out. So there is this this spectrum here that is all covered under that biblical word doctrine. In fact, the military uses the, the word doctrine in much the same way that if you go over to Iraq and they have uh, some piece of equipment and things don't work right, then they'll go back and they do a revision of doctrine. 
which has to do with the revision of as much revision of procedures as well as the, the ultimate theories of war. And I don't mean theory in the sense of maybe it works and maybe it doesn't, but in the basic controlling ideas of, of how things are going to function on the battlefield in terms of strategy and tactics. And then they'll come right back down to the soldier who's on the front line and who's facing the enemy, and they'll change the way he functions and operates in terms of procedure. So one word that you could use, it's virtually a synonym to doctrine, is the word procedures. We are taught procedures on how to deal with the issues of life from Scripture. So the word doctrine isn't just some abstract thing. Now, I know every one of us here has run into this problem at some point. You, you face something where you say, I'm going to handle it with doctrine, but you know the average evangelical out there just doesn't understand it, so you have to use some circumlocution like, well, we're going to apply the word or we're going to apply some promises or something like that because they're, they're so afraid of this word doctrine. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, though, says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for, first word is doctrine. It's a good biblical word. It's profitable for teaching. And this is to be the priority of a local church. The thing I've noticed lately, I read through the religion section of the Houston Chronicle and look at some of the uh, advertisements that are there for various churches and I look in some other places as well, and this has become a big thing today in terms of uh, marketing churches, and, and I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with some things that are done just to let people know you're there so that if they have positive volition, they know you're there, and that those who are positive will come, and those who aren't, well, we don't want them to come anyway. But some of the slogans that you'll see that, that, that churches actually use, but, but the sad thing is these are... These are big churches that, that use these slogans, or they're on their way to being big churches. Slogans like, now these are real slogans, folks. I don't, I don't want you to think I'm making this up. Let us entertain you. Let us make you feel good about yourself. Another church said, we will never offend you. And trust me, that is a that is a major plank in, in, in many churches. I understand that over here at Lakewood, they won't let uh, Joel Osteen talk about sin. I know that it's it, it, that years ago when Willow Creek up in up in uh, Chicago, where Bill Hybels is a pastor, and Bill Hybels and and uh, Rick Warren out on the uh, out in Southern California, who wrote the book The Purpose Driven The Purpose Driven Life, that's just gotten a little publicity pump with. Is this lady who uh, 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 talked down the, the, the criminal who escaped last week and murdered the court officials that uh, she was reading portions of the purpose-driven life to, to him? And uh, these guys are the big gurus in what's called the church growth movement. And this is where all this philosophy comes from. Well, Bill Hybels got started doing these, these uh, he would do surveys. And I really think that, that Bill is an evangelist at heart. He's not, a, he's not a pastor teacher. I really think he's an evangelist at heart. And what they would do is they would go out and go, he would go door to door, knock on doors, and he had a survey. And the first question would be, uh, are you going to church anywhere? And if they were, he would say, fine, that's great, because his target was, as he terms it, the unchurched Marys and unchurched Harrys. That's their big slogan terminology. 
And so he would come along, and, and, uh, and as a result of this, he would give this little survey, find out what all the unchurched Harrys and unchurched Marys wanted in church. Well, we want music that we can relate to. You know, we want, we, we want a band up there with, with tambourines and cymbals and guitar and, and a worship, you know, somebody who's singing up there. We don't want to sing these old hymns that we don't know anything about, and that's not our generation's music anyway. So, so you know, they do away with that, and they get, you know, they get the lead singer up there, and they basically have a show, and, and uh, it cha- it's changed the structure. And this was in the early 80s. This has changed the structure of worship services at the average church in America the last 20 years. Because everybody else wants to do it because he grew to be the largest church in America in about 15 years. So if he did it, let's, everybody else wants to, wants to do the same thing. And uh, when he first got started, he decided he was, these people need a little doctrine. So he decided to teach on sin. Attendance dropped 75% in three weeks, so his deacons told him that he couldn't preach on sin anymore. Another slogan that's, I, I just couldn't believe it, we keep it light. We keep it light. We will, another slogan of a church, we will meet your felt needs. One of my personal favorites was, we're your therapists. Talk about using Worldly, worldly methodology to build a church. Another one says, we will never make you feel uncomfortable. And then one more says, we do it your way. Oh, when we read through these letters, these congregational evaluation reports in Revelation, we just wonder how much longer we have in light of contemporary Christian culture. Well, see, the trend today is to reject doctrine. Doctrine divides. If you teach doctrine, you're going to have fewer people. The more detailed you get into the Word, you make a, you make a stand on dispensationalism versus covenant theology. Well, you know, some people won't like that, and they'll leave. You start teaching pre-trib rapture, you know, more people are going to leave. You, you, teach, uh, you teach free grace instead of lordship, more people will leave. You teach... Uh, uh, you teach a middle way instead of strict Calvinism, or more people are going to leave. What are you going to do? You've got five people left. Don't teach doctrine. Everybody will come back. Well, that's the idea. But that wasn't the idea of the early church. and wasn't the idea of Ephesus. They knew theology and they applied it. They applied it in te- testing those who claimed to be apostles and were not, and they applied it in the realm of the Nicolaitans. Now, who were these people called the Nicolaitans? Well, we don't know a lot about them. This was a sect of some kind that generated itself in the first century but didn't uh, continue on into the second century, so there's no hard evidence about who they were, what they believed. We know a few things for certain. First of all, we know that it was a first century sect that had a serious doctrinal aberration. That's why they're referred to in two of these short critiques, the one to Ephesus and the one to the church in Pergamum. Both the church at Ephesus and at Pergamum had a problem with the Nicolaitans. The Ephesians rejected them, though, and were praised by the Lord Jesus Christ for having done so. Think about it, a church that actually rejected people. So what a new thought. 
but the Pergamum church was ecumenical and invited them in. Come on, just feel comfortable. Come on in. We won't say anything to offend you. We won't say anything to upset you. Just come right on in. So there's a contrast there. And in the letter to the Pergamum church, there's an identification of certain sins that were associated with the Nicolaitans. Sins of eating food that had been sacrificed to idols, as well as a practice of sexual immorality. And this seemed to be connected to the doctrines of Balaam, which has a heavy undertone of anti-Semitism. And that it seems to be connected to the same teachings among the Nicolaitans in uh, verse 15 of chapter, chapter 2. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, the Lord Jesus Christ says. Now these problems of food, eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality were problems that were addressed in the early church as early as the first Jerusalem council which is covered in Acts 15.20 as the church began to expand out of its Jewish roots in the first 14 chapters of, of Acts. Uh, as Paul went out and took the gospel to Gentiles, he came back, and this was a problem for a lot of Jews. How, how do we assimilate these Gentiles? I mean, these guys do things that, that aren't orthodox. They don't follow the kosher laws. How, how do we assimilate them? And after they argued back and forth, the grace of God prevailed and they ended up saying, no, there's only two things that we ask, and that is that they abstain from eating things sacrificed to idols because that indicates a, a compromise with idolatry and that they abstain from uh, sexual immorality. And so these were problems that were common in the early church, but apparently they had sort of crystallized in a sect called the Nicolaitans, and so this was a problem. Now, what else do we know about them? Well, we don't know much. There's two basic views, and I'm not sure that either one of them has any strength. Two basic views on identifying the Nicolaitans. The first view is that these were the followers of a man named Nicolaus of Antioch. Nicolaus of Antioch, and he's mentioned in Acts chapter 6 as one of the seven men that were chosen to help uh, with the distribution of financial aid to the widows in Jerusalem, along with uh, uh, Philip and Stephen. And so the early church thought that this, the Nicolaitans were followers of Nicolaus and that at some point he had gone negative to the Word of God and had gotten involved in licentious heresy. In the early church, you had two early church fathers, Irenaeus and Hippolytus, who believed that he had gone into spiritual rebellion and that others had followed him. But one of the early fathers, Clement of Rome, who's roughly contemporaneous with this period in Revelation, believed that Nicolaus was not involved, but it was somebody else of that name. So we're really uncertain as to who it was. In the 18th century, that's the 1700s, for you, those of you who are numerically challenged, in the 1700s, uh, scholars began to take the view that Nicolaitan was a, based on a Greek word that was a code word for the Balaam, uh, for, for Balaam in the Old Testament, from the Greek word nikao. Nikao, this is the, we'll run into this word group in this passage, Nikao is the 
verb that means N-I-K-A-O. You usually see it on tennis shoes or T-shirts as Nike with a little, the little swoop. That doesn't do justice to it. This was the goddess. Nike was a goddess of victory. Nikao means to overcome, to have victory over, or to exercise authority over someone. And so there is a second school of thought that these were the early denominationalists, and they were exercising, developing a hierarchy of authority in the local church, and that this led to ultimately to what became known as the monarchical bishop and the idea that there was, was some sort of hierarchy of leadership in the local church and that they were abusing that authority. I don't think there's enough evidence there looking at the etymology to uh, link that to Balaam. I think that's far-fetched. I don't think that there's enough evidence to link this to Nicolaus. What we do know for sure is that this was a group that was licentious and libertine in their understanding of the Word of God, and they compromised with the, with the uh, value system of the Greek pagan culture around them, and they found ways to justify that in terms of the Word of God. Now, that's nothing new in terms of the history of Christianity. In fact, sometimes... Uh, those of us who believe in the free grace of God are often accused of being licentious. But grace, true understanding of the grace of God, is never licentiousness or a license to sin. This is one of the problems the Roman Catholic Church had in the Counter-Reformation is if you reformers are teaching that all a person has to do to go to heaven is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, then how are you going to keep the people moral? If they're saved by just believing in Jesus, what's to keep them from living like hell? You've got to do something to keep them under control. They're just going to go crazy. And this was, this was one of the major arguments in the Counter-Reformation. But grace is not licentiousness. It is true freedom. Because it gives us the freedom to fail, which is related to the freedom to succeed. To the degree that you're not free to fail, you're not free to succeed. It works both ways. To the degree that you're free to succeed, you have to have a freedom to fail. But because you're free to fail doesn't mean that God wants you to fail or you have a license to fail, a license to sin and just continue to do whatever your sin nature wants to do. Free grace and salvation is not a license to sin. Free grace and salvation is a recognition that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins at the instant of salvation. That, that at the instant, that at the time there, those three hours that He is on the cross, God the Father imputed to Him every single sin in human history so that all sins are actually paid for. By Jesus Christ on the cross. First uh, John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 21, he has reconciled the world to himself. First uh, Peter 1, he has redeemed the whole world. Now, if he's already redeemed them, propitiated them, and reconciled them, why aren't they saved? Because they have to exercise faith in Jesus Christ. 
See, what Jesus Christ did on the cross was solve the objective problem of the believer's sin. But He didn't solve the subjective problem of the believer's sin. The subjective problem is that even though Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sin in terms of spiritual death, His separation from God, when He died on the cross, even after He died on the cross, you and I were still born spiritually dead. That's the subjective problem. The other part of the subjective problem is that we didn't have the righteousness of Christ. You can't get into heaven and have a relationship with Jesus Christ unless you possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. You've got a problem with spiritual death, you have a problem with uh, your lack of righteousness, and you have a problem with the fact that you, are, you don't have eternal life. Those three problems are subjective problems in the sense that they are related to each one of us. Now, the penalty was paid... You're released from the slave market of sin. You've been reconciled to God. Colossians 1, 19-23, Christ reconciled all things. That's not just talking about sin. That's, that has application to everything in creation because everything in creation is affected by sin. He reconciled all things to God and His body on the cross. So all of that happened objectively, lays the foundation so that now the issue is what about what's happening subjectively in your life. You're spiritually dead. The only solution is to be regenerated. It never says that Jesus Christ regenerated all mankind. It says He was the propitiation for the whole world. He redeemed all mankind. And He was the propitiation for the whole world. But it doesn't say He regenerated the whole world. Only by faith alone in Christ alone are you born again or regenerated. And that happens at the instant of salvation. Your volition engages to trust in Christ alone. Second thing is that you have, you're spiritually dead. That's solved by regeneration. The second thing is the lack of righteousness. And at the instant of faith in Christ, God the Father imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when He imputes that perfect righteousness to us, God the Father looks on us and declares us to be justified. He declares us to be in perfect alignment with His absolute standard of righteousness. And that's called justification. The great Reformation doctrine, justification by faith alone. And the Scriptures never say that the whole world is justified. It said the whole world was propitiated, redeemed, and reconciled, but not regenerated, justified, or given eternal life. And that solves the third subjective problem. We have temporal life, but when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we're given eternal life. And so half the problem, the objective side of the problem, is solved at the cross. But it has to be applied to the individual believer, and that comes by faith alone in Christ alone. And it is not measured by what you do after salvation. It is not measured by the fruit in your life. See, that's a back door to bringing in work salvation. Well, how do I know I'm saved? Well, if you're, what was it, the old, old children's song, if you're saved and you know it, your life will really show it. Well, see, that's not true. Because you can be saved and you haven't had any spiritual growth. You've rejected doctrine. There, there's, you're still living by the flesh, walking according to the sin nature. 
The Bible teaches that salvation is based on grace alone. It's a free gift. It's not that, well, okay, you were saved, you trusted Christ, and now you've committed such and such a sin. Well, maybe you weren't really saved. And see, that's what Lordship Salvation teaches, is that there are certain acts that can take place in a Christian's life, and if that's present, then maybe you didn't have real saving faith. It wasn't genuine faith. It wasn't true faith. And they put all these qualifiers on faith, and you can search the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and never do you find a qualifier on faith. The Bible knows nothing about true faith versus false faith, genuine faith versus a professing faith. It only knows about one faith, and that is a faith in Jesus Christ. And faith is non-meritorious because the merit is on the cross. The merit is in the work of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. And what happens is that there's always Christians who come along and want to abuse the grace of God. On the positive side of that, if you're really teaching grace, there are going to be people who take advantage of it. I think it's just standard for any, any immature believer. Think about yourself. I don't want any personal testimonies. But think about yourself when you were, let's say, 13 years old and 12 years old, something like that, and your mother and father left you at home alone for the first time for four or five hours. Maybe it didn't happen the first time, maybe it was the second time, and you realized you might be able to get away with something. And they were dealing with you in grace, and you used it as a license to do what you knew you shouldn't do. I mean, that's true for everyone. That's typical of immaturity. And that's typical of immature believers. They're going to abuse the grace of God. They're going to treat it as a license. They're going to look at 1 John 1, 9 as a license to sin and get away with it. They might even go so far as to say, well, I'll just prebound. You know, just confess it ahead of time. And we laugh about that because we've all been there. But one day we grow up and we realize we don't get away with it. God's omniscient. He's not like our parents who left us at home and they didn't know what we did. They had an inkling, but they didn't really know. But God knows. We don't get away with anything. And there's divine discipline for sin, but there's also grace because God gives us a little extra grace as we grow up. And one day we realize it and we decide, well, I can't do this anymore. I've got to start being serious about doctrine. And that's the mark of what we see in the next verse, the overcomer believer. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That phrase is addressed to the believer that is positive, the believer that is ready to listen to what God the Holy Spirit is going to teach us in the process of learning the Word. This is what I refer to on our study the last couple of weeks on the doctrine of Revelation in Hebrews, that the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds to the truth of His Word. That's not revelation. That's In one sense, it's, it's not God speaking to us, not like He spoke in terms of direct revelation in the Scripture. But in another sense, it is the fact that God still speaks to us, but He only speaks to us through His written Word. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the words that have been inscripturated through the process of inspiration. And if we're positive, we will listen. We will have genuine humility, real grace orientation. We'll say, yes, that applies to me. I don't like it. I look in the mirror of God's Word, and it reveals something that that doesn't make me very happy. I'm not proud of what I see. 
But I'm willing to be objective and to say, yes, that's me. I'm not, I'm not as consistent in my walk with the Lord as I was. I'm not as, as positive to doctrine as I once was. It's not the priority as once was. And that's why we get this warning in the second half of the verse. And we'll get one in every one of these letters. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This is a warning that there's two classifications of believers in eternity. The overcomers and those who fail. Do you see the same classification at the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? There are those who will enter into heaven with rewards, gold, silver, and precious stones, and those who will have them all, all their works burned up, and they will enter into heaven, yet it's through fire. They're still saved, but they've lost everything. There's nothing there. Their life had no eternal production. And that's the situation that we have to face as believers. Are we willing to just be saved? Are we willing to recognize that where we're headed today is for it, it determines eternity? The decisions we make today shape our character, determine what happens at the judgment seat of Christ, and shape our destiny in the eternal kingdom. To those who overcome, they're promised a special blessing to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, this is an extremely complex phrase, one that is challenged. I want to deal with it in detail, so we'll wrap up here. But the idea is that there are those who will overcome and have a victory in the Christian life in terms of their advance to spiritual maturity, and they will be given special privileges and position and responsibilities in the eternal kingdom. And there are those who won't. And this is a challenge this is the grace challenge to the licentious issue. Is there's no place for licentiousness and libertinism in the Christian life because there are consequences. How we spend our time in time will affect what happens in eternity. And this is the one. Do we want to be an overcomer believer? Are we an overcomer or are we an underachiever? Or worse yet, are we going to be a failure? And that's the challenge. And next time we'll come back and look at the meaning of overcomer. Because there are many people who teach that an overcomer is simply a believer. And we'll have to do an in-depth study of the first epistle of John in order to understand what's going on here. And it is a tremendous doctrine with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by it for the way the Holy Spirit takes these eternal truths and drives them home into each one of our souls. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they will understand that that is based on grace. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, that we might have eternal life, and that the way to acquire salvation is to simply believe that Jesus died for you, to trust in him. You don't need to pray a special prayer. You don't need to walk an aisle, be baptized. You don't need to go through any hoops. All you need to do is believe God is omniscient, and at the instant you put your faith, 
your trust, your reliance upon Jesus Christ alone. At that instant, you're regenerated. You receive the imputation of perfect righteousness and eternal life, which can never be taken from you. This is your opportunity to make that sure and certain in your life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied this evening, that we might uh, press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.